gives us life. You tell us the unfolding of your words gives light. We pray that we would see the light of Christ. We pray that we would learn about you. We would be warmed and comforted by your light. Father, we pray that we would gain understanding of what you're, what you're doing in the world, what you have done. Uh, Father, I pray for grace to speak your word clearly, to exalt Christ. I pray for those listening, Lord, they would consider your words, consider your truth, and how you are calling us to live. Lord, it's all for your glory, and it's in the name of your Son, Christ, that I pray. Amen. In American history, she's iconic. She inspired over 3,000 women to action. She came of age in 1942, and then by 1943, she was famous worldwide. She could be seen on posters wearing lipstick and mascara, but she wasn't trying to win a beauty contest. She wore a blue-collared shirt, With both sleeves rolled up, her right arm clenched in a fist about shoulder level high, her left arm ready, poised and ready to roll up her her right sleeve. She had a forward look on her face. Her hair was tucked and curled up neatly under a red bandana. Who is she? This is Rosie the Riveter. Rosie the Riveter. Uh, Rosie the Riveter was, was more than just a propaganda campaign by the U.S. government. She became famous during World War II because she was used in posters and media to call women into the workforce, into the the industry of war. Not to go fight on the front lines, but to take care of things while so many had left and gone to the front lines of battle. Historians note that before the war, the U.S. aircraft industry, for example, 1% of their workforce was women. But then during the war, after Rosie's campaign was in full swing, 65% of their workforce was women. Women were incredible during World War II. They took care of their families and farms and industry and supplies. Why are we talking about women in World War II? Well, because in God's word today, there is a battle that rages, and there are two women in particular, Deborah and Jael, that we have to give our attention to. The the narrative of God's word focuses on them and their contribution to an effort larger than themselves where they sacrifice and they risk valiantly. And this morning, this isn't just a sermon for women, although I hope it's inspiring to girls, ladies, women of all ages. It's inspiring to all of us because it's, it's not really about us, it's about God and what he's doing. It's about Jesus Christ. And I want to show you that this morning from the book of Judges. So to see what I mean, turn with me. Turn to Judges chapters 4 and 5. Judges chapters 4 and 5. It's found on page 203 in the Bibles provided for you. Judges chapters 4 and 5. And as you're turning there, we should note that Judges spans some 300 years. So roughly from when Joshua died, he was a leader in Israel, all the way up until the monarchy started, 300 years go by. So the people have left Egypt, they've had the exodus, Moses has died, Joshua has died, there is no king, and a new generation rises up, 
that's pretty careless towards God. It's a generation that is filled with apostasy. Apostasy just means turning away from the Lord or forsaking him. And the book of Judges details these groups of people, these generations that are are following, and how they keep turning back to their sin. They spiral downward. They sink lower and lower and lower. And the reason the book is called Judges is because time and time again, God would raise up a judge to lead his people, specifically with military might to crush enemies that pursue them. But the moment that judge would die, the people turned back to their sin. So Judges is, is an interesting book. It reads like many superhero vignettes at times, little stories, episodes, but they're all meant to be held together. And the passage we're reading today, Judges 4 and 5, is one story. And if it feels like we're about to read a long passage, we're going to read two chapters. We have to read two chapters. Let me show you why. Before we read these, look with me at the way verse 1 of chapter 4 starts and the way verse 31 of chapter 5 ends. Chapter 4, it begins with the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The last part of the last verse of chapter 5 says, the land had rest for 40 years. Those two things don't add up. There's an epic story in between. But that's the way the narrative flows in Judges. If you, if you look one more glance over in chapter 3, notice with me the way chapter 3 verse 7 and then verse 11 fits together. Verse 7, the people of Israel did evil. Verse 11, the land had rest for 40 years. Or look at verse 12, the people of Israel again did evil. And then look at verse 30, the land had rest for 80 years. So when we come to chapters 4 and 5, this is a longer story, but we've got to keep it together. Two helpful hints for you as we're about to read this to help your understanding. Number one, we're about to read a lot of names and places that may seem very confusing. I was confused the first time I read it. But don't get so much hung up on the name of somebody or a place that you've never heard of. Think, think more about what that person is doing or what's happening at that place. And then second thought that will help you as we read this, think of it this way. Chapter 4 is a narrative of what happens, and chapter 5 is a retelling of the exact same narrative. It's the exact same story, but it's written in song and in poetry. So we're about to read the same story twice with two different angles, but it's the same story, okay? Read along with me silently. I'll, I'll read out loud. But we're going to read all of Judges 4 and 5. Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived at Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. 
and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh, Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, I will go, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you nevertheless. The road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaanim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, and do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. While he was lying fast asleep from weariness, so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went in to her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. 
Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way to the sound of musicians in the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan. At Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly. Because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds and a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window, she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for forty 
years. I pray we come to understand God's grace, His glory here in Judges 4 and 5, and that it would stir us up to serve Him with strength all of our days. Here's the main point of chapters 4 and 5. We want to capture the main idea. Here it is. God will get glory for Himself with or without my willingness to serve Him. Yet He desires that I serve Him. God will get glory for Himself with or without my willingness to serve Him. And yet He desires that I serve Him. That word willing is important. You know what the word willing means, most likely. A good definition would be Willingness means a readiness to offer oneself, being eager, volunteering to do something, being desirous, being inclined, being motivated, not by coercion. Something that's done with a readiness, without reluctance. God calls all of his servants, whether they are are leaders or pastors or seasoned Christians or brand new Christians, leaders, volunteers, all of us who would claim the name of Christ, God calls us to be willing servants. One of the ways we know that theme is so prominent in these, uh, these verses is in chapter 5, verse 2, chapter 5, verse 9, and chapter 5, verse 31. Beginning, middle, and end, we're taught that we should be willingly offering ourselves to God. That's the lens through which the people of God praise what just happened. So if we're going to pay attention to see what what God has for us in the Word this morning, we have to think about that idea of willingness. Ask yourself this question. What has God called you to do that you feel unwilling to do? Is there anything God has called you to or is calling you now to do for Him, but you feel unwilling to do it? I pray that this passage would encourage you. We all have things in our life that seem too scary. They seem too difficult. If we're honest, they seem too costly to do what he calls us to do. Opportunities, responsibilities. We would rather play it safe or think that it's not close enough to concern us. It should just concern others. This passage instructs us on how to cultivate our willingness to serve God. Three points of application. These are the three main points of this sermon. We'll spend most time on point number one and a little bit of time on points two and three. But if you like to take notes, here are three ways that we can cultivate a willingness to serve God, a readiness to serve God. Number one. Keep a reliance on God's word, even if you must stand alone. Keep a reliance on God's word, even if you must stand alone. This is verses 1 through 16. Number two, consider that faithfulness and risk are sometimes the same path. Consider that faithfulness and risk are sometimes the exact same path. This is chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. 
Number three, realize that we will soon reap what we now sow. We will soon reap what we now sow. This is all of chapter 5, verses 1 through 31. These ideas are put on display by the very characters of this narrative. So let's, let's look at God's word. Number one, keep a reliance on God's word, even if you must stand alone. We see negative and positive examples of this in the passage with the people and Deborah and Barak. The people don't rely on God's word. Look at verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. When did they do it? After Ehud died. So the people are not relying on God's word. Perhaps they're relying on a leader to lead them, but they're not relying on God and his word. And then notice how long it takes them to cry out. Verse 3 there. 20 years. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Sisera had, had 900 chariots of iron. He oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So the people are a negative example. They have God's word. This is taking place after the Ten Commandments have, have been given, after the Mosaic law has been set up, the sacrifices, the priests, the tabernacle. All these things are in play. The people have an awareness of God's word, but right off the bat we see people who are not willing to rely on God's word Perhaps it's just a leader. They sin the moment Ehud died, a previous judge. And then it seems like God is kind of a last resort. Because they don't cry out to God after a year or two years or five years of oppression. Or triple that amount, 15 years. But after 20 years, they finally cry out to God. What is it that they've been relying on? For 20 years, their own strength? It's certainly not God and His Word. But look at at Deborah. She's a positive example of relying on God's Word. Verse 4 Deborah comes on the scene. She's a civil judge of sorts. She's offering leadership. She's speaking God's Word. She's actually leading when others are not willing to. Look at at verse 4. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. That's not a word we encounter too often, a prophetess. What does that mean? Well, Exodus 15.20 helps us here. Exodus 15, if you remember, mentions Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister. In Exodus 15.20, Miriam is shown to be a prophetess. And then later in the book of Numbers, she says things like, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us also? It actually becomes a source of contention and pride for her that God speaks through her. Deuteronomy 13 tells us that a prophet, prophetess, doesn't matter, a prophet can never speak to entice God's people away from God. And then in other places, like Deuteronomy 18, we're told that a prophet must speak truth. In other words, when they speak God's word, which is what a prophet does, It must be true or come true, lest they be put to death. So to be a prophet or a prophetess is not something that somebody wakes up one day and says, I think I'll be a prophetess today. It's a person who's receiving God's word, claiming to receive God's word that they then speak that helps guide and direct God's people. That's who Deborah is. 
she's a prophetess, so she relies on God's word. And we know that she's willing to rely on God's word even if she's standing alone because chapter 5, verse 7, which, by the way, chapter 5 is like a lens that helps us interpret and clarify and understand the narrative of chapter 4. In chapter 5, verse 7, we're told, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers kept to the byways. Villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. So at a time when everyone's scared because of the oppression of the enemy, she's the only one willing to rise up. God calls her to speak his word, even though she's standing alone. I like how J.C. Ryle, the bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s, spoke to this idea. Not this passage, but this idea of standing alone. He said, we want more who are not afraid to stand alone. It is truth, not numbers, which shall always in the end prevail. Deborah doesn't forsake God's word. She doesn't replace it with her own ability. She would have if she would have gone to Shiloh and kicked the priest out, got rid of the tabernacle and the sacrifices, or tried to take over at Shiloh. She doesn't do that. Notice where she goes there, verse 5. Her location complements, but doesn't replace. Verse 5, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So she's in this wonderful central location, but a little bit further south than where the tabernacle is. It's almost as if when people would come to her for judgment and help and decisions and knowing God's word, they would be without excuse to see the priest, the temple, the sacrifices. She's complementing what God is doing. She's not bumping it out of the way and taking over. Deborah doesn't displace men in their leadership role but encourages them, actually. But she is willing to fill the gap left by indecisive and weak men. This is what happens in verse 6. She has to summon Barak. She keeps relying on God's word, even though she's standing alone. She gets word that there's this guy named Barak who is not obeying God's word, so she summons him. Verse 6. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh, Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? She tells him what to do to gather his troops. So this woman, in every instance, is relying on God's word. In every instance. Every time she speaks, whether it's here, whether it's her response to Barak, whether it's when the battle's about to happen and she says, Go, has the Lord not gone out before you? She's constantly speaking God's word. But we have this negative example of what happens when you don't follow God's word completely. Look at at verse 8. This is the first time we hear Barak speak. Barak is unwilling even before he's summoned. The evidence of that is in the rebuke when she says, Has not the Lord commanded you? But verse 8 is telling of what Barak says. Notice what Barak says. If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. What is that? Barak, what are you doing? If you go with me, I'll go. That that sounds great. That sounds godly and holy. And what he should have said was, and if you won't go with me, 
I will go because God has commanded me. Commentators and others debate about, was this a pious, devoted thing Barak said? If, if you will go with me, I'll go, and if not. Some think that this is really holy because he wants God's authoritative spokesman to go with him. But it's not holy because you have to take both halves of his statement. He says at the, at the end of verse 8, if you will not go with me, I will not go. Deborah is not tasked with his task. She's the messenger. She delivers the message. He sends it right back to her. He's afraid to make a decision. He puts it back on her. He's indecisive. He's not relying on God's word. He's not willing to stand alone. So what's he relying on? Well, he's relying on his own sight. Perhaps he's relying on the sight of how fearful those chariots would be. As verse 3 says, they're chariots of iron. Chapter 1 says these chariots of iron were so powerful that even the tribe of Judah couldn't take over this area at the beginning of the book. It seems like an enemy no one can defeat. And Barak is relying on his own sight because he's looking at how devastating these chariots would be. And instead of putting his eyes on God, he now takes his eyes off the chariots and he puts his eyes on Deborah as a leader. If you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you won't, I won't go. He's he's still not relying on God's word. He's relying on her. He wants her to initiate, to make decisions. As it says in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Barak needed to hear that verse, but it hasn't been written yet. His indecisiveness is a platform for his disobedience even under the disguise of piety. He wavers between trusting God's word and unbelief. And Deborah, what does she do? She responds again with God's word. God gives her a prophecy in that moment. She speaks God's word. We have to love what she says, verse 9. She says, I'll surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Stage is set. She agrees to go. So they get ready for this battle. They go to Mount Tabor, 10,000 troops. And even there, Barak is not willing to act. Did you see verse 14? Deborah has to tell him, up, come on, get going. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And then a battle ensues. And in chapter 4, it looks like Barak and his sword is kind of the only means by which the battle is won, his troops. But did you notice chapter 5? God sent a thunderstorm to wipe these guys out. Did you notice that? Look at chapter 5, verse 4. The bottom half of verse 4. This is a retelling of this battle. The heavens dropped, yes, the clouds dropped water. And then look at chapter 5, verse 20. Drop down to chapter, 20, chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. It says that from heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent Kishon. March on, march on, my soul, with might. So the Kishon is not this raging river. It's usually pretty low, pretty dry. It's near this valley of Jezreel, this plain. Perfect spot for chariots to zip around, take guys down. 
And when the battle ensues, this whole time God has had this plan. All right, we're going to draw out the enemy and his mighty iron chariots, and I'm going to bring my chariots. We know that because God says in Psalm 104, verse 3, he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. God brings his chariots to the battle, the wind, the storm clouds, the rain. What happens if you sprinkle a little water on the battlefield? The ground becomes soft. But soon there's so much rain, the chariot wheels become clogged up. That's why the horses are are let go and they gallop away, as chapter 5, verse 22 tells us. Loud were the, the hoofbeats. Can you see what God is doing here? He wants Barak to rely on his word because this whole time God has a plan of taking down the enemy with his chariots, with a thunderstorm, rendering the enemy's iron chariots completely useless. But before that battle, all Barak can think about is they have iron chariots. Is is Deborah with me? He's not looking to God and relying on his word. How beautiful that God would enlist us and call us to his work even though we get so timid and fearful like Barak does his unwillingness and unbelief is meant to yes warn us to not do the same but it's meant to point us to God God is the main willing actor keeping his word here he said he would draw out Sisera and overtake them this shows us the willingness of God to keep his word this is why Christ came. Christ Jesus was willing to rely on God's word, even if it meant he had to stand alone. Do you remember how Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? Alone, he relies on God's word and proves victorious. Do you remember how Jesus was in the garden and the disciples said they were so willing, but they fled away. They even denied him. And alone, Jesus went forward to absorb the wrath of God on the cross. That's the point of the Bible. All the stories of the Bible point to Jesus by either positive or negative example. This action of Barak creates a longing in us. Man, I wish there was somebody who was just always and ever willing to serve God. I wish that was me. But you and I both know we fail. And even if you became suddenly very willing to serve God right now in this moment for the rest of your life, how would you erase all those other times where you weren't willing? This is why Christ came. Our unwillingness to serve God is like us saying, whether we use words or not, it's like us saying, God, you're not really worthy and all-powerful and almighty. I'm I'm not willing to serve you and do what you've asked. And because God's good and wrathful, he will punish every human being who is not willing to love him with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. That's all of us. That's the bad news. That God is so good, he'll punish us and punish our sin. But in his love, he sent Christ to be the willing one. Always, ever ready. His whole life, he he was ready and willing and and offered himself over and over again to the will of God, to the leading of the Spirit. And by dying on the cross and then rising again three days later, Jesus proved that his willingness pleased God. And he commands all of us to repent 
let go of our, our unwillingness to serve him and love him and instead embrace loving God, embrace obeying his commands, embrace trusting him. And if we turn from our sins and we trust in God and his, his sacrifice, we get to be saved. It always depends on God. He's going to get glory whether or not we turn and trust him. But God invites us to trust him. I don't know about you today, but some of you don't know Christ. Some of you wouldn't consider yourselves a follower of Christ. You're here. You're listening. You're being polite. I thank you for that. But I want to ask you, what is it that you are willing to do? In other words, if a significant other or your boss at work or maybe even some other means, if somebody asks you to do something, who is it that you're willing to do something for? At a certain point, if you keep peeling back the layers, where's God in your life? If you don't know God, are you willing to serve him? We're all willing to serve someone. And if you're looking around and you're thinking, well, there's nobody I'd be willing to serve, it's because that person is you. Your own desires, that's what you're willing to serve. If you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christian today, Realize that your unwillingness to rely on him is offensive to him. And you will not escape unpunished. It's risky to live apart from God. But it's also risky to follow God. Notice what J.L. does. Point two, considering faithfulness and risk are sometimes the same path. Look how risky the situation is with J.L. So the bad guy gets away, Sisera, and in verse uh, 17 there, he flees to the tent of Jael. And Jael's the wife of Heber the Kenite. Verse 11 mentioned the Kenites. They're related to Moses. It's the family he married into. Chapter 1 mentions them again. Chapter 1 mentions that they went to live with the people in the south. In the passage we're reading, it's a risky move on their part. Heber and his wife Jael move all the way up to the north where this battle's going on, before the battle. And they have peace with the enemy. But apparently it's just her husband, not Jael, because the things she's about to do show she is not aligned with the enemy. Sisera comes to her tent, and notice how immediately, when he's on the run, he puts her in a position of choosing between helping the enemy, being complicit, being complicit with God's rivals, or standing and risking for God. She has limited options. She doesn't have time to think of a bunch of different plans, there's risk, what would she do? More than that, is this really faithful? Or are you just putting some preacher talk into this person and making them seem faithful? Well, James 2 tells us, does it not? Show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. And James mentions Abraham, and James mentions Rahab, who took the messengers and sent them out by another way. So J.L. is in that kind of category. We see her actions of faith. They're so risky, but they're for the Lord. For her, faith, risk, willingness, they're all the same path. It would be so risky to let this guy into the tent because what if somebody sees that happen? She's putting her life at risk. She's covering him up with a rug. Is she hiding him? What if somebody came in at that moment and saw her covering him up? They could both be captured. Verse 19 shows how the risk increases. 
He says, give me a little water to drink. Please, I'm, I'm thirsty. She opens a skin of milk. She denies his water request and gives him milk. Some would say this is a, a mothering motif. She covers him with a blanket. Here's your milk. Go to sleep. Others would say, no, this is just a sign of hospitality. However you slice it up, it's a sign of getting this guy to be at ease and go to sleep because she knows what she's about to do. Here's where the risk escalates even more. Verse 20. He says, stand at the opening of the tent. If anybody comes, say nobody's here. The enemy clearly charges her with a command to assist in his hiding and his recovery. But she doesn't. Verse 21, most risky of all. She's not playing it safe. The adrenaline of faith is pumping in verse 21. Tent peg in one hand, hammer in the other. Notice the first half of verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly to him. She tiptoes to him. At this time, the women would set up the tents. These were not unfamiliar tools to her, the sharp tent peg and the hammer. She'd use these often. She's used them with intensity to try to drive the stake through hard ground before. She's resourceful. She gets these tools. She goes quietly. It's risky to the max. I mean, imagine if her hand slips and she wakes him up and drops the tools right next to him or on his face. Imagine if in her fright she she swings and misses and hits her own arm or her hand or she nicks part of his head but doesn't kill him and he wakes up and there's a struggle. She's risking her life at this moment. Husbands, you know what it's like to have to obey your wife's orders and, and nail and hang a picture in a room. You've got to get it right. I can only imagine the fear she would have. She has one chance to drive this tent peg into his temple and kill him. She only has one chance. Look at the second half, verse 21. She drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And in case anyone is not grasping this moment, the last three words, so he died. This is a bloody strike. It's gruesome. What if her husband now returns and sees a dead leader of the enemy that he's in peace with? What if her husband returns and wants to kill her? She's risking her life. But while she's risking her lives, other Israelites outside the tent are risking their lives. Verses 23 and 24 say that Israel presses harder and harder against the enemy till they destroy them. Ask yourself this morning, would you ever be willing to do what JL did? Guy or girl, doesn't matter. Would you ever be willing to do what she did? Some would say no. But we forget in chapter 5, she's called blessed. What seems so risky to you? Is it fulfilling the Great Commission? Is it evangelism? Is there some neighbor or coworker that you are terrified to share? You're looking at the iron chariots of their objections.
Does it seem too risky to forgive someone else? Does it seem too risky to make disciples? We can look at our ability, we can look at their ability, or what they might think of us, or these consequences. That's all just the iron chariots. God wants us to act in faith, even if it's risky. He's going to win the battle. He's going to carry it through. How willing are we to be about the Lord's business? Has he not gone before us? Sure, it it can be wrong to always gamble and throw the dice and, and live super risky. Proverbs will tell us, zeal without knowledge is not good. Whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. But so many Christians often use the excuse of, I'm not ready, I don't know enough. And anything that even seems risky for the Lord, nope, That's not me. Would we rather play it safe than rise up for the Lord? Thirdly and finally, we have to realize that we will soon reap what we now sow. This chapter 5 is so unique. It's a song. It's a victory song. Totally appropriate. Sports teams today, when they win, they sing their, their fight song. At this time, We don't have many songs in the Old Testament. The Psalms haven't been written, the Psalter. This is the only song in the book of Judges. It's very, very important. It's a song all about who is willing. It was meant to be sung by everyone. That's why verse 10 says, Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, rich carpets, walk by the way. Rich, poor, everyone. This is a song for you to sing to orient your minds to what God is doing. But notice how in this Song, it's all about what you sow is what you reap. We have some detail given here that we don't get in chapter 4. We see which tribes were willing to freely offer themselves for the battle and which ones weren't. So if you look there in verse 14, the middle of verse 14, that word makir, Genesis 50, 23 tells us this is just a son of Joseph. So this is talking about the tribe of Manasseh. But if we zoom in on, on verse 14, we see Ephraim, We see Benjamin, Machir, and Zebulun. They're all risking their lives. Verse 15, the princes of Issachar. These were tribes who were willing to sow in faithfulness, and they got to reap victory, and they got to reap the fact that there was a song sung about them. But there were some other tribes that would cringe anytime this song would be sung. Notice these tribes who were stagnant, unwilling, and had unbelief. Verse 15. The clans of Reuben had great searchings of heart. They sat still. Gilead, beyond the Jordan, it's the tribe of Gad. They sat still. Dan, they sat still. Asher, why are you guys staying by the sea coasts? And why are you all over here with your sheep folds? Have you ever heard the excuse, I can't risk, I can't do this for God because my business needs me? We have to be careful when we say it this way. My, my family needs me. If I, don't, if I don't work, my family won't be provided for. We can kind of leverage family on a work excuse. I get it that there are times where we have to work and take care of our families and we can't risk for God. But there are times where we do need to risk and rise up. 
So this passage is, is calling us to examine our lives. Are there any times where we would be willing to risk our reputation at work or our profitability at work to be about God's business? Not every single day, but when a, a big battle rises up, when there's a special moment where you're called upon to take part, would you fail and use an excuse like these tribes did? J.L. is praised. The rest of this song, those are praise, praises uh, for J.L. But the sin of omission looms large here. There's tribes who failed to act. Omission means they didn't want to obey. They left good work to be done. God's word says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. And we get something striking here where the song turns its attention to Sisera's mother. And she's thinking, oh, why is he so long in coming home? And they speak degrading words about women. Oh, a womb or two for every man. They're treating women like property. They're dividing the spoil. The irony is he's at the feet of a woman, but he's dead. The irony is he is caught up in the embroidered goods and the spoil. He's wrapped up in an embroidered rug, dead. And verse 31 calls us to realize that God wants all of us to rise up and be willing to serve him because the things that we sow will be what we reap. These tribes that held back, they thought it's no big deal. But now everyone sees their, their folly and unbelief. God is calling us to be willing to serve him. Rely on his word, even if you have to stand alone. See that there are certain moments where faith and risk are the same. And see that when we sow willingness to the Lord, we will reap praise and joy and honor in him. He will get glory. We will get joy. There's no poster that says we can do it for Christians. It's, it's Jesus. It's a picture of him saying, I have done it. It's accomplished. So the question remains for us. It's all for his glory. Are you willing? Let's pray. Jesus, help us to be willing to serve you. Father, forgive us for the times where we have to be coerced into serving you, or we're so shaky that we'll only serve if the right people are around us to serve with us. Give us a confidence, a desire to see you glorified. Lord, we give you praise. You are the main actor, the main willing one. Help us cultivate a willingness to follow you, no matter what. In Christ's name.